It is the best-selling book in history. No volume ever written has been more loved and quoted. And its words, sometimes simple and sometimes mysterious, should always be studied carefully. It is the Bible, the Word of God. Welcome to Bible Answers Live, providing accurate and practical answers to all your Bible questions. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this broadcast, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, here's your host from Amazing Facts International, Pastor Doug Batchelor. Hello, listening friends. Would you like to hear an amazing fact? Have you ever worried about what you're going to wear or wish you had more closet space? Well, Mahbub Ali Khan never had these concerns. The sixth Nizam of Hyderabad, India, who ruled between 1869 and 1911, had such tremendous wealth, he brought the best English tailors to Hyderabad to create his royal robes. He insisted on a new outfit for every single day, combining local tradition with modern styles, and he never wore the same dress ensemble a second time. On one occasion... Ali Khan liked a particular fabric so much he bought a five-year supply in advance so nobody else might wear the same material. A real clothes horse, this ruler devoted a whole wing of his palace just to his wardrobe. A 176-foot-long corridor with cupboards on either side. His closet and collection of garments is still considered among the largest in the world. You know, the Bible says the richest wardrobe in the world cannot compare with the beauty of a flower. Stay with us, friends. We're going to learn more on this edition of Bible Answers Live. You're listening to Bible Answers Live, accurate and practical answers to your Bible questions. Hello, listening friends. I was getting a drink of water and it snuck up on me. How is everybody? Welcome to Bible Answers Live. We're also streaming this program right now on Facebook. You can watch it either on the Amazing Facts Facebook page or the Doug Batchelor Facebook page. And I am Doug Batchelor. My name is John Ross. Good evening, friends. And uh, Pastor Doug, it's good to have Bible Answers Live again this evening, live. We did something special last week, uh, but tonight we're back to taking calls. Before we get to the program, though, let's start with a word of prayer. Dear Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity once again to open up your word and study together. And we wish to ask in a special way for your presence and your blessing to be upon this program. I'll be with those who are listening, Lord, uh, across the country and around the world. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Pastor, you opened the program about somebody who just, well, he didn't want to wear the same garment twice. And I'm just thinking that must be quite the experience. I mean, sometimes you, you find a favorite shirt or favorite pair of jeans that you like to wear i can imagine what it must be like to try and fit into something new every single day (laughs) be tedious but he he wanted to do this i guess he was quite a character i read a little about him and he had a pretty high estimate of himself uh one time when he was riding the train they wanted him to get off the train and to walk through the station to his elephant and he said no I'm the ruler. I'm not walking to my elephant. You're going to bring the elephant to the train. And he stopped train traffic for two days until they agreed to bring the elephant through the station <laughs> and to pick him up. I guess he was interested in impressing people, but it's kind of sad. He, he pretty much died from an alcohol-induced coma in, when he was about 40. But he had quite a wardrobe. And, you know, it makes me think of where Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 28, Why do you worry about clothing? 
Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil or spin, and yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God will so clothe the grass of the field that's here today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? You know, the Bible tells us that when the Queen of Sheba came to see Solomon that she saw the attire of his servants and she she had no more breath in her. That's where you get the expression of breathtaking experience. And so you can imagine what Solomon's garments must have looked like. But Jesus said, you know, the flowers are more beautiful than that. God will take care of you. And then I think about the richest man in the world really wasn't Solomon. It would have to be Jesus. I mean, because he, his father owns a cattle on a thousand hills. And the only thing Jesus owned was a robe. And they took that away at the cross. You know, the Bible tells us that uh, they scattered his other garments in four parts, but they wouldn't tear his robe. They cast lots to see who would get it. And that was a blood-stained robe because they had taken it off of him, whipped him, put it back on, then brought him to the cross and took it again. And, you know, there have been a lot of you know, movies and stuff that have been made about the robe of Christ, but that robe really represents the righteousness that he offers us, that blood-stained robe that covers our sin and washes our robes as white as snow, as it says in Revelation. And we have a free offer tonight if people would like to know about how can they have their sins covered by that blood-stained robe, and it's free for asking. We'd be happy to send anyone a book. It's entitled The Riches of His Grace, and it's talking about this grace that God wants to give those who put their faith in him, And we'll be happy to send this to anyone who would call and ask. Our resource phone line is 800-835-6747. And just ask for the book, The Riches of God's Grace. Again, that's 800-835-6747. If you have a Bible question, our phone line here at the studio is 800-463-7297. That'll bring your call here to our studio. And we're going to go to our first caller. We've got Glenn listening in Ohio. Glenn, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for taking my call, Pastor Bachelor. And in reference to your opening remarks, I heard it said years ago that the, uh, Elizabeth Taylor never wore the same sweater twice. So I thought that might fit into what you'd opened with. Well, in Imelda Marcos, I don't think she wore the same set of shoes twice. <laughs> so, yeah, there's some people that uh, they like to change their clothes. <laughs> and your question tonight? Yeah, the question concerns the Sabbath, so. I'm a lunar Sabbatarian, and the reason I am is because uh, I believe that the seventh day is, according to the lunar cycle, that 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 was set by God. And when you create the calendar by the Passover, you come up with the 15th of of Abib, the first month, as being a a, uh, Sabbath as per the commandment. And then the 16th being the first day of the week, obviously the 15th becomes a seventh day. And and my, my question was not really a rhetorical kind of a question, but very important to me, and that is, what calendar did God use in Leviticus 23.4 and changed to the lunar calendar in Leviticus 23.5? Did he change calendars? All right, let me see if we can answer your question. The Jews operated under two calendars, and... You know, it's interesting when you get back to the flood, it even tells what days of the month the flood waters came. And you think, well, was there a a Noah calendar? 
But I think that Moses is taking the calendar that they had as a Jewish nation, their religious calendar, and he's extrapolating backwards what time of year it was. The beginning of months for the Israelites, that calendar was established with the Passover, and you'll find that in Exodus chapter 12, said this will be the beginning of months for you. And it seems like that the the Jews, they developed another calendar that was more of a civil calendar that may have operated the time for the kings because, you know, they would talk about in the third reign of this king, in the fifth reign of this king. I don't know that God swapped calendars anywhere during the five books of Moses. You know, with all due respect, Glenn, we just uh, probably respectfully have to disagree with you. I don't think that the Sabbath changes from month to month based upon the moon. I think that there are two separate cycles of time. Just like today, the the month and the days of the week are a separate cycle. Every seventh day is when you have the Sabbath. And it's also every seventh day is when you get the first day of the week. It's a seven-day cycle that has been repeating since creation. And the whole Jewish nation will bear witness to that. So I think it's hard for us to disagree with what we know is 3,000 years of written Jewish history. Uh, more than that. Now, of course, not only Pasadena do you have the seventh-day Sabbath, but there were also ceremonial Sabbaths right. that we read here in Leviticus that were actually part of the, um, the religious calendar. And those days could fall on a particular day of the week because it's more connected to an actual number in the month. Whereas the seventh-day Sabbath would always be on the seventh day or on Sabbath or Saturday. But the ceremonial Sabbath could be on a, a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It moved depending upon the year. Yeah, and that kind of is proof that the sacred calendar was separate from the weekly cycle because some years and the, the sacred calendar was governed by the moons, their months. Like, you know, Passover was governed by the moon. But some years the Passover fell on the seventh-day Sabbath. They called that a high Sabbath. If the weekly cycle was always governed by the lunar cycle, there'd never be a conflict. It would always be the same. Hope that makes sense, Glenn. We appreciate your question. Next caller that we have is uh, Akish, listening from Illinois. Akish, welcome to the program. Hi. Uh, good evening, Pastor Ross, and good evening, Pastor Bachelor. Uh, Pastor Bachelor, uh, my question was actually regarding my brother, who is a special kid. Uh, he is suffering from 75% of mental retardation, and uh, he needs assistance with activities of daily living. And he also has a loss of the fine uh, um, uh, motor skills, you know, like he cannot close his eyes uh, voluntarily. He cannot uh, hold his breath. So I had a burden, and I was really thinking that, we haven't uh, uh, we haven't actually tried to get him baptized by immersion so uh, he hasn't been baptized all his life um, and i was wondering that how is this going to be in the end you know i was really worried like is he still going to be saved because he doesn't understand much and he's not baptized. So please, if you could just pour your insight. Yeah, that's a good question. And there's probably other people, Kosh, just like you out there that have loved ones that are um, handicapped mentally where they they can't comprehend, you know, spiritual things or maybe uh, experience a baptism. Uh, you know, one of the conditions of baptism would be that you're taught and you understand the, the principles of salvation. Now that's for a person when they're old enough to have uh, the understanding and they reach the age of accountability. That's why we don't baptize babies. From what you're saying, it would seem that 
you know, your your brother, he may be handicapped or he, he just can't un- understand those things. And I would think the Lord is going to look upon him as an innocent child. And you might be worried about baptism, uh, you know, for your benefit. So you guys would have some peace that he'd be saved. But I, I don't think the Lord's going to judge him that way. He's probably going to judge him like a child. Yeah. You know, God is merciful and he always takes into consideration uh, the situation that a person might find themselves in. And uh, sometimes there are people who are elderly that might not have any inability mentally to be able to understand truth, but maybe physically they just don't have the ability. They can't be baptized because they're ill or they're on their, their deathbed. Um, their lack of being baptized doesn't prevent them from receiving salvation. I think that would be true uh, of, of your brother. Yeah, the Bible tells us that Jesus was baptized, and of course he was not baptized for his sin. Jesus was sinless. For one reason, Jesus is baptized as an example for us. But I think that Jesus may also have been baptized in behalf of those who cannot be. Like the thief who died on the cross next to Christ, he accepted Jesus. He couldn't be baptized, but Jesus said he would be in the kingdom. I think that you would uh, put your brother in that category and say, you know, it's just not practical. It's not going to be an obstacle to their salvation. The Lord is going to look upon them as uh, innocent, having not reached the age of accountability and saved by virtue of the prayers of uh, family. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you for your call. Our next call is Patrick, listening from Washington State. Patrick, welcome to the program. Thank you. Yes, it's uh, my first time. Well, thank you for calling. Yeah, great. Yeah, I guess um, my question is uh, related to... uh, uh, the idea of riches and um, Christ's teachings on, uh, and I know a lot of your listeners probably probably know these passages about the, the impossibility of a camel going through the eye of a needle. And so um, I guess I'm just trying to uh, figure out like what he really meant with these teachings. Are these serious teachings? Like does it does it mean that if if one has riches that, that it's impossible to enter into the kingdom? And then I guess to follow up on that, like, what does it really mean to have riches? You know, you think about, like, in our culture, especially here in our country, um, you, you look at, the, the let's say, the, what we call the poor. But then you compare them to the poor in, Af- let's say, in Malawi, Africa. And, and, and what we call poor would be considered very rich, actually. Right. Compared to much of the world, we, we are very well off. So does that mean that the average American is lost because we qualify as rich and you can't get into the kingdom of heaven? Is that kind of what you're wondering? Well, you know, I guess I'm kind of going that way, I guess. Let's talk about the verse. There's a passage, and you can read this in Mark chapter 10, verse 23. And Christ said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, who then can be saved? And Jesus said, with men it's impossible, but not with God. Now, it's interesting, you also find this passage in Luke. And right after this passage, when they're wondering, can a rich man be saved? It talks about a rich man named Zacchaeus who gets saved. Now, keep in mind, in the Bible, the David will be in heaven. He was certainly rich. Solomon, it appears, will be in heaven. He was rich. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all, they, they all had significant property. And Job, you know, was doubly blessed at the end of his life, and he will be saved. God is not saying that a person who has wealth cannot be saved. 
He's saying a person that trusts in riches cannot be saved. That young man in this story was afraid to sacrifice riches and follow Jesus. Everyone who really makes a decision to follow Christ needs to put their heart and all they are on the altar. Then he wants us to use our wealth and the ability even to get wealth to be a blessing to mankind. And, and you know, not to trust in it because it can all disappear in a day. Some people have discovered this in the last month. I'm going to put you back on and uh, want to make sure that you were able to hear that. Patrick, did that make sense? I, I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. But I think I just, you know, I, I think it's good for your listeners to at least, you know, consider those passages very seriously. Um, That's right. Yeah. We, we shouldn't strive to be rich. Yeah. And, and the parable, the parable about the, the deceitfulness of riches, you know, in the parable of the silver, it chokes the word. That's a good point. You know, I'm looking at another verse here in First Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, that I think goes along with this. Uh, this is Paul writing, and he says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. So again, it's the, the love of money, the desire for riches, putting your trust in those things. Yeah. Now, there were a couple of people, two or three rich people came to Jesus' rescue at the end. Nicodemus bought, he was wealthy, and he bought uh, the myrrh to anoint him, and Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, offered the grave, says he would make his death with the rich. You know, the Lord is not disqualifying people, but you're right, Christians need to be very careful about covetousness. And Jesus said, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Good thoughts, Patrick, and we're glad you brought that to our attention. At this time, uh, we need to remember our priorities. You're listening to Bible Answers Live. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. Call us at 1-800-GOD-SAYS. Do you feel as though your world is spiraling out of control? Or perhaps new life challenges are frightening you more than they should? Are you sinking while you're thinking? Excessive worry can consume you eating you from the inside out, resulting in sickness, insomnia, and paralyzing fear. It can also damage relationships, ruin opportunities, and yes, diminish your witness for the gospel. Worry affects everybody differently, but it's all driven by fear. So how can you overcome a world full of reasons to be anxious? I'd like to recommend for you my new book, Finding Peace in a World of Worry. You'll discover a lifeline to victory, a place where you can cast your cares upon Christ and experience a serenity that isn't subject to your circumstances. Get your copy of Pastor Doug's Finding Peace in a World of Worry today. Call 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. Can't get enough Amazing Facts Bible study? You don't have to wait until next week to enjoy more truth-filled programming. Visit the Amazing Facts Media Library at AFTV.org. At AFTV.org, you can enjoy video and audio presentations as well as printed material all free of charge, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, right from your computer or mobile device. Visit AFTV.org. We've got uh, Joseph listening in Pennsylvania. Joseph, welcome to the program. Hello, Pastor. I hope you're both doing well. We are. Likewise. How are you doing? Good, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, Considering how the coronavirus left the world's economy in a shambles, not to say nothing of the thousands upon thousands of lives that were lost, I was wondering if uh, Revelation 6-2 
uh, if I may read it, and I looked and behold, the white horse, who sat, uh, he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Uh, somebody brought to my attention that the word crown here from the original Greek translates into the word corona in the Italian Bible, Spanish Bible, Czechoslovakian Bible, and in other languages. And I wonder if there might be any significance to that. Probably not. You know, there's also a beer out there called Corona. This word in the original Greek is the word Stephanos. That's where we get the name Stephen. Stephen or Stephanie, or it, it all comes from uh, the word Stephanos. So you're looking at it in Latin, and I suppose, you know, there's probably 10 other languages that it's translated into that would say all different kinds of words. The word Corona in Latin is halo. It's not that this prophecy is talking about the virus. The virus is actually named after the Latin word for a halo. I do think there are signs that we are living near the end, but I wouldn't use that verse that way. Yeah, if I understand correctly, I think the, the virus uh, was named that way because of under a microscope, it, has, it looks a little bit like a crown, at least the structure of the virus. And um, I think that's the connection. Yeah, e exactly. But we're going to be doing a special program talking about just some of what prophecies say in our day and age, what's happening with the, the world, economy, and otherwise. Uh, did that help, Joseph? Yeah, sure. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks for calling. Next caller that we have is Kate listening in uh, New York. Kate, welcome to the program. Hello. Um, hi, uh, dear pastors. And um, I've been searching for the God for a long time, and I'd like to thank uh, Pastor Duke for for your wonderful service and bringing me to the Lord. Amen. And I have a question today. Um, would you like to share how do you fast in prayer? Maybe there is a there are a few things that you could uh, recommend and uh, um, from your personal experience. Maybe there is a method that works for you that maybe could help us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Kate. Good question. I'll I'll just give you a few points. I have a message online. You can see it's all free at YouTube, and it's just called When You Fast. So there's more there, but just very quickly, there's several different kinds of fasting. There's a regular fast where you just don't eat any food, and that may last. You might skip a meal. It might be a day. Uh, we've got a friend here that just got done with 10 days of fasting uh, for a special series, and I think he just drank lemon juice. And So you, you might just you know drink some juice. Some people go on a juice fast. Uh, you want to make sure you've got the medical health to do that. So if you've got like, you know, low blood sugar or something, better talk to your doctor before you fast. Sometimes people combine a fast with a time for prayer. I find when I'm going to fast, just to prepare myself, I have to plan the date a few days ahead. So I just brace myself. When I wake up on this day, be advised now, Doug, you're not going to eat. And once I've prepared myself mentally, it's a little, e a little easier for me to wake up and just say, you know, this is the day or the days I'm not eating. And you try and eat good going up to a fast, so you're in good health at that time, and drink plenty of water, and it's still good to get the fresh air and the exercise, and you don't want to do too much exerting exercise because, you know, you can get faint. But most people I know that fast and do it correctly, they say they feel great. Yeah, absolutely, especially if you can do it for... They're hungry, but <laughs> they feel You can do it for a day or two. Uh, you know, sometimes it takes a day or so to really start feeling feeling the benefits of fasting. Absolutely. It's good for a person's health, and it clears the mind. And I think that's that's the focus. People fast for different reasons, but I think if you're going to combine prayer and fasting, you want to make sure that you take time to spend extra time, perhaps, in prayer. 
maybe there's a particular burden that you have maybe there's uh, somebody that needs prayer because of bad health you know you can kind of make that the focus of your prayer absolutely so thank you kate we appreciate your call next caller that we have is is it the Celine? i don't know how you say that from lancaster california the sally hello hi how are you good how do you say your name Cecily. Cecily. Okay, welcome. And your question. Why did God make the world? God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they said, we love to love others. Let's make a world of people we can love. They enjoy, God enjoys loving creatures and and giving life and giving joy. So he made this world, and it was a beautiful paradise when he first made it. Uh, the devil came in and messed things up. But when God first made it, it was a beautiful paradise. And he wanted to share this joy and love with Adam and Eve. Good question. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks so much for calling. And Thessaly, you would enjoy our Amazing Adventure program. You can have your folks go to the Amazing Facts website. we got a program just for kids that are like 8 to 12 years of age. <laughs> Sounds like a little brother there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for your call. We appreciate that. Ron is calling from Tennessee. Ron, welcome to the program. Good evening, uh, Pastor Ross. Uh, and the only bachelor program I pay attention to is <laughs> Pastor Bachelor. Well, I'm honored. Thank you. And your your question tonight, Ron? Is, do angels have souls? And if they do, could you give me a Bible reference? I'm assuming that angels are souls. Now, what I mean by that is, the Bible seems to say that when, when God creates, you know, he took the elements of the world and he breathed a breath of life into man and man became a living soul. It means he became, a, you know, an independent moral agent able to, you know, have abstract thought and worship God. We believe angels also have freedom and independence because some angels chose not to worship God. The Bible says the angels, and this is in Hebrews, I forget the verse, Pastor Ross, ministering spirits. Uh, sent forth to minister to those who will be heirs of righteousness. It does tell us in Revelation chapter 12 that the angels that followed Lucifer, they made a conscious decision not to trust God and to follow Lucifer. So they're intelligent creatures that are able to process and make decisions, which would lead me to believe that they, they have souls. Now, the verse you're referring to there, Pastor Doug, is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, talking about the angels, says they are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. We don't have the word soul attached to angels in the sense that we would have that of created beings. And it's also interesting that the word soul in the Bible is not only used for human beings, it's even used for any living creature. When it talks about the souls in the sea died, talking about during the time of the flood. So it means um, created life that we have here on this earth. I hope that helps a little bit. Yes, yeah, it does. that's what I was after, because I was reading, yesterday I was reading Revelation and uh, talking about Satan's angels being in chains and held in reserve for the day of judgment. Right. Yeah, and it mentions that both in the book of Jude and in Peter. But yeah, I think you're on the right track. They are intelligent creatures that they're being punished because they made a choice. Uh, the fallen angels, meaning. Pastor Ross, we got 21 seconds. So uh, if you're standing by, we do see... Uh, so Charles and Anthony and Janessa and Sophia stand by. We do have a few lines open. If you want to call in with a Bible question, we're going to be back right on the other side of this break with more Bible questions during this important time when people are sequestered at home. 
Stay tuned. Bible Answers Live will return shortly. What if you could know the future? What would you do? What would you change? To see the future, you must understand the past. Alexander the Great becomes king when he's only 18, but he's a military prodigy. 150 years in advance, Cyrus had been named. Rome was violent, they were ruthless, they were determined. The gospel writers see his death as a fulfillment of salvation. This intriguing documentary, hosted by Pastor Doug Batchelor, explores the most striking Bible prophecies that have been dramatically fulfilled throughout history, Kingdoms in Time. Get your copy today. Available now on DVD, Blu-ray, or USB. For more information, visit KingdomsInTime.com. An international pandemic killing thousands, riots ripping communities apart, a global economic implosion, Many are wondering, is this the end of the world? Few question the military, economic, and technological might of the United States. So if we really are facing the last days, if these worldwide catastrophes are really harbingers of the end, shouldn't we expect the United States to play a key role in the final events of Bible prophecy? The Book of Revelation provides unmistakable clues. And to help you understand them, Amazing Facts is releasing America in Bible Prophecy. It's going to take you step by step in identifying the global forces at work in these last days. You might be surprised what the Bible really says. You owe it to yourself to find out. So get yourself a copy of America in Bible Prophecy. You're listening to Bible Answers Live, where every question answered provides a clearer picture of God and His plan to save you. So what are you waiting for? Get practical answers about the good book for a better life today. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this evening's program, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, let's rejoin our hosts for more Bible Answers Live. Welcome back, listening friends. If you've just joined us, this is Bible Answers Live, and we are streaming Bible Answers around the world. We are from, uh, it's just outside of Sacramento, California, a place called Granite Bay at the Amazing Facts Word Center. You can also watch what's happening here on the Facebook page by going to Doug Batchelor's Facebook page. That'd be Doug Batchelor Facebook or the Amazing Facts Facebook page. And you can take a peek at what's happening here in our studio. I am Doug Batchelor. My name is Jean Ross. And we're going to go to our first caller. We've got, uh, let's see, Phil is listening from New York. Phil, welcome to the program. Yeah, how are you doing? Thanks for taking my call. I appreciate it. Yeah. Don't get me wrong when I ask this question. I have a very high regard for evangelicals in general. And you yourself are a nice guy and a very knowledgeable guy. You know, sometimes you hear even evangelicals say, Maybe the Jews of his day did not do quite the right thing by Jesus. 
but the other side of that coin never turns up. Uh, I was watching a movie about Jesus. He was specifically about the Sermon on the Mount. And the best question that was asked of him, at least from my perspective, a guy in a crowd says to Jesus, Rabbi, if you are who they say you are, why don't you get rid of the Romans? Mm -hmm. That's my question. All right. That is a good question. And in fact, you're in good company because the apostles asked the same question of Jesus. They said, after Jesus rose from the dead, they said, will you at this time restore the kingdom? Meaning overthrow the Romans and, and restore the kingdom of David. And in the interest of full disclosure, Phil, I am Jewish. Well, my mother's Jewish, but they tell me that that means I qualify. And my kids bought me a DNA report and it shows that I am. I am, I guess you would call a Messianic Jew. I believe Jesus was the Messiah, but I'm a, you know, I'm a Sabbath keeping, I'm a kosher eating <laughs> Christian Jew. And I think it's unfair. It always makes me cringe a little bit when I hear uh, people say the Jews killed Jesus. Because in fact, the early church all believed in Jesus. They were Jews. And those who are baptized on Pentecost and all the apostles in the New Testament was written by Jews. There were some Jewish leaders, not all. You've got people like Joseph and Nicodemus that believed in Jesus. And many priests believed in Jesus. And of course, John the Baptist and some argue even Josephus believed that he was the Messiah. It's, I think it's unfair to make it sound like it was all the Jews. Like in any culture, you've got some fair and unfair people. And there were some scoundrels there in Jerusalem that were threatened by the power. But a good question would be, why didn't Jesus, when he came the first time, use that power to subdue the Romans? Well, he told Pilate when he was being tried, he said, my kingdom is, he's, Pilate said, are you a king? He said, yeah, but my kingdom's not of this world yet. Meaning he came the first time as a sacrifice. When the Messiah comes again, he's coming as a conquering king. Came the first time as the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Every Jew understands the Passover lamb. It's a sacrifice. He comes the next time as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He comes as a king and he will then overthrow all of his enemies. We're going to bring your volume back up, Phil. I, I, we sometimes bring down the volume just to make sure we don't get feedback. Did that make sense? You still there? I'll tell you the truth. That was an excellent answer. It more than made sense. It was very incisive. And I appreciate your taking the time and making the effort. And I thank you so very much. Thank you, Phil. Appreciate your good spirit. All right. Who's next, Pastor Ross? All right. We're going to go to, uh, let's see, we got uh, Kevin in Chicago. Kevin, welcome to the program. Hi. Hi. How you doing, Doug? I'm doing good. How can we help you tonight? Uh, so I basically had a, you know, I had a long kind of statement initially. Uh, so I kind of don't have a Bible question specifically, but I do have a life question. And basically, long story short, you know, I had a legalistic father, you know, uh, and I never was able to play like basketball um, growing up due to, you know, Sabbath and uh, playing in the high school team and all that. Um, but it's always been like a regret of mine. I kind of tend to blame, you know, God and my father for not being able to play, even though I really wanted to. Um, is there any way like advice for me of how to get past that and not, um, you know, and move forward? Not, not hold it against them or feel guilty. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me see if I could take a stab at that, Kevin. First of all, it doesn't matter whether you were raised a Seventh-day Adventist or whether you were raised a, a devoted uh, Sunday keeper. Yeah, a lot of kids through history have been told, you know, we don't do this because we're Christians. And it might be, you know, we're not going to 
uh, they made a famous movie called Chariots of Fire about a young man said, uh, he was a Christian missionary, he said, I'm not going to run even in the Olympics for my country on Sunday. And, you know, everyone now thinks he's a hero because he took a stand like that. And I can't speak for exactly the situation of what kind of household you grew up in. You know, parents, I think, do their best to try to both stand for the Lord and have values in their home. And at the same time, you know, make make uh, growing up a pleasure. Pastor Ross has a whole litter of kids. And, uh, you know, you, it's a constant battle. Now, you, you grew up in a pastor's house. I did. I grew up in a pastor's home. And, yeah, there were times where... You know, especially as a teenager, you want to spend time with your friends and maybe you want to get involved in some sports or activity. That's right. And uh, sometimes you wonder why. But, you know, as you get older and you begin to look for God for yourself and you begin to understand the reasons behind why God has said uh, this is not good, this is not good. And uh, and we're able to grow spiritually in understanding of what God would have us do. You know, then all of those things come into perspective. We understand the reason behind it. And as a child, you don't always understand that. You might not have a meaningful connection or relationship with God. And so it does seem like just a long list of you can't do this, you can't do that. So, you know, that's not uncommon for, for young people to go through a little bit of a, a trying time with they need to figure out for themselves. What do I believe? Why do I choose to do what I do? Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately today across the board in Christian churches, we find statistically that we are living in such a liberal society that Christian kids feel so restricted because all their friends are doing everything under the sun that there's a mass exodus from Christian families and from Christ when uh, they get out to college. Usually it's around that college time where where kids are leaving home. Uh, You know, Kevin, we turned you back up. Um, I think probably the most important thing is, you know, kind of put the stuff in the past behind, but it would be wise to find out why you believe what you believe and make that connection with God because that's what puts things in perspective. Can't go backwards. Yeah, no, that's that's you. <laughs> I hope that helps a little bit. We appreciate your uh, standing by and a good question. I'm sure others were tuning in. All right, the next caller that we have, we're going to go to, uh, let's see, we have uh, Lois listening from California. It's Lewis. I think. Oh, sorry, Lewis. Hi, good evening. Thank you guys for taking my call. My question is, how should a Christian approach culture in such a way as to better understand the beliefs of the people he wants to evangelize to without letting the culture corrupt him? Well, that is a great question. And, you know, Paul said, I become all things to all men that I might reach some for Christ. Now, that doesn't mean you participate in anything that is a violation of a Christian principle. But to be aware of what, you know, the cultural needs are, Amazing Facts has done mission work all over the world. You know, we've we've been in Africa and islands of the South Pacific and India. We've got, you know, full-time people working with us in India and Russia and all. And everywhere I go in the world, Orient, they got little different customs. And you need to be sensitive to those things to try to reach people. And you can't usually figure all of that out in a day or two. But as you live among a different culture for a while, you understand what, what they value and their habits then you find sometimes the best way to present the most attractive aspects of the gospel for them and, you know, bring them into studying the word for themselves. But you never want to sacrifice a Christian principle. You know, I heard one time, this is a radical example, but I heard about a pastor that uh, he was trying to understand this epidemic of pornography, so he thought he needed to look at pornography to understand it. So that was the dumbest thing in the world he ever did because then he just, he scarred his mind and he became addicted. Yeah, so you don't want to 
you know, say, I want to reach alcoholics, so I'm going to start drinking. And then I think the point for that is if you're going to start doing those things to try and reach people, uh, and then you're asking them to a higher standard, and they're going to say, well, if you really believe in this higher standard, why would you participate in something that you know is not right? Exactly. you got to show them by example. You look hypocritical. Thank you. Appreciate your question. Next caller that we have is Charles listening in uh, Florida. Charles, welcome to the program. Hey, uh, Pastor Ross, Pastor Doug, I have a question. The uh, Dealing with the coronavirus, I just recently lost my brother due to cancer on the 9th of, the, of this month. Um, now, it's with this whole coronavirus that's been going on, could it be that the reason God is allowing this to take place is, you know, that isn't it says like somewhere that there, that there's going to be people that go to sleep before the great tribulation takes place, before the plagues and everything, because they can't stand up to them? Or <laughs> bring bring me the light on that. Well, first of all, we, we uh, share with you in your loss. I've lost my brother years ago to cystic fibrosis, and I know even... Even if um, you have a long life together, it's still, it still creates a vacuum, and I'm sure that you're going to miss them. But there is a verse in the Bible, and Pastor Ross might be going into it now. Yeah, I think it's Isaiah, where he takes them away from the wrath to come. I'm looking at one. It might be that same verse, uh, Job chapter 14, verse 13. It says, Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past. Then you will appoint a time for me. You'll remember me. And then it talks about if a man dies, will he live again? says, all the days I will wait until my change comes. You will call and I will answer. So, you know, there are times where God might lay somebody to rest um, and resurrect them when he comes again, especially the elderly or somebody that might be struggling with a disease or a sickness. And it's the merciful thing for God to do. It's difficult for us. And, uh, you know, it's always difficult to lose somebody that you love. But we do have the promise if they are believing in Christ, uh, you've got the promise of the resurrection. Yeah, and then, and then there's another verse. I can't lay my fingers on it right now where it says that, you know, none considers that they're taken away, being preserved from the wrath to come. He's shielding his loved ones. There are some people who are laid to rest, and it may be just because God knows what we can endure and what we can't endure. You know, it's it's hard to say. Uh, we don't know how soon the time of trouble is going to come. We are going through something of a time of trouble now, but yeah, this is not that serious. It's I'm hearing people on television and radio, they're complaining about having to look at the same decor in one room day after day. And other people are complaining they're gaining weight because the refrigerator is always six feet away. <laughs> That's all they can think to do. They, that is tough, but it's not like some of the other times of trouble we read about in uh, in history and one that I think is coming, too. All right. Well, thank you for your call. Our next caller is uh, Janice, um calling from Bakersfield. Janessa. Hi, brothers. Thank you for your service. Yeah, thank you. I had uh, two questions. The first one was from Psalms chapter 18. Why did David ride the cherubims to get the ark? And the second one was from Genesis chapter 27. Why did Rebecca help Jacob get the blessing? Tell me that verse you're looking at in Psalms again. What was it? Psalm 18, you said? Psalm 18. The particular verse? I just wrote down the chapter. Oh, okay. I just like the reference. Well, I'll let Pastor Ross look that one up about the cherubs. It's a long psalm. And the reason Rebecca wanted Jacob to deceive his father, the Bible says that Isaac had a favorite. His favorite was Esau. Rebecca had been told by the angel when she had twins that the younger 
is the one who would receive the messianic blessing. And she knew that Isaac was getting ready to put the blessing on Esau. And so she did a little bit of conniving to get Jacob to impersonate his brother before their blind father that he might steal the promise, the vow of the birthright blessing. So she was just using some you know, family intrigue to try to ensure that Jacob, her favorite, got the blessing. Now, that's happened many times in history where uh, you know, some of these kings had several wives and several children, and all the wives would jostle to see which one's going to get the inheritance. you find that verse there? Yes, uh, it, it is Psalm 18 that talks about this. And just to kind of get the context, it's talking about how that David is praying and he's calling to the Lord for deliverance and strength. And then it says the Lord answered him from his temple. And it's talking about the heavenly temple. And the Lord came down in response to his cry. And it talks about how the earth shook, the foundations of the hill, uh, they quake. And it talks about God coming from heaven. He came down with darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. So it's really describing the coming of the Lord. And of course, that occurred in one sense when uh, the Ten Commandments were given and God came upon Mount Sinai and there was thundering and lightning. But in a broader sense, deliverance comes for God's people when Jesus comes the second time and he comes with all his angels. So it's a sort of poetic description of deliverance. In Psalm 18 is written, I was just reading the heading again, David was surrounded on every side by enemies, the Assyrians in the north, Syrians in the north, the Edomites, Ammonites, Moabites to the east, the Philistines to the south and Egyptians. David got the victory over every one of them that had been fighting. And finally, I think when he subdued all the nations that surrounded him, he declared this one beautiful uh, psalm. He had also been saved from all his enemies and the hand of Saul. You're listening to Bible Answers Live. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. Call us at 1-800-GOD-SAYS. Does your heart burn for a better purpose? Do you yearn to do more with your faith? Do you desire to be a powerful witness, a blaze for Jesus Christ? Where do you start? Make your first step at AFCO, the Amazing Facts Center of Evangelism. Here at AFCO, I've learned so many things and my spiritual growth has just skyrocketed. AFCO has distilled 50 years of Amazing Facts evangelistic expertise into a dynamic, professional, and educational experience that transforms the nervous Christian into a prepared and bold witness. AFCO is really about learning while doing. It's a one-of-a-kind experience for those who are serious about entering gospel ministry and those who simply want to make an impact in their local churches and communities. Go to AFCO.org today and explore this life-changing program. AFCO, equipping soul winners, setting the world ablaze for God. Did you know Amazing Facts has a free Bible school that you can do from the comfort of your own home? It includes 27 beautifully illustrated study lessons to aid in your study of God's Word. Sign up today for this free Bible study course by calling 1-844-215-7000. That's 1-844-215-7000. Next call is uh, Sophia listening in Canada. Sophia, welcome to the program. Hi, Pastor Doug. Hi, Pastor Ross. Hi. My question is about prayer. Um, Do we need to dress 
in white and wear a white head covering and pray at a certain time of the night or early morning for prayers to be answered. I was told that the angels will dwell with us if we do this and our prayers will be answered that way. You know, I don't see any verse in the Bible that says that we need to dress in a particular color to have our prayers answered. You know, the priests, when they would minister, it's true, the priests were given garments, and but that was a uniform for the priests. You know, there's no record anywhere that Jesus told the apostles that they were to wear any particular color when they prayed. I think if this was a, a mandate, he would have said something about it. I don't read where in the New Testament, Paul closest thing I think you can find is Revelation where it says that the redeemed have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's spiritually, you know, in heaven we'll probably have white robes. You can pray in whatever robe you've got, whatever color clothes you're wearing. Now, there is a verse where it talks in First Corinthians chapter 11 about when women pray in public that they should have their head covered. But as you read that, we're led to believe that Paul even recognizes it was a custom in their culture that, you know, when a woman prayed without her head covered, it was considered in that culture to be disrespectful. You know, now, if you're Jewish, you don't go into church without a yarmulke on your head. If you are a Christian, you do not go into church with a baseball cap on. They're opposites, but it's a custom of respect. So I would say whatever culture you're in, you want to follow the custom of respect. Nothing in the Bible, and I don't know any country in the world, says you have to dress in white to pray. We have no examples of that in the Bible where people would change in order to pray. I think we have examples in the Bible of people praying in all types of different situations, some praying from prison <laughs> where they were just wearing rags, uh, others praying with gorgeous attire like the kings. Uh, but it's really the heart that God looks at. So that's what's important. Thank you for your call. Uh, good question. Our next caller is Diane listening from Iowa. Diane, welcome to the program. Well, it's wonderful to talk to both of you. Well, thank you. Likewise. Um, so, but my question is, um, reading in, um, uh, you know, Revelation, when we spend a thousand years, um, with, uh, the Lord, uh, and then in other parts of the scripture, it says like a thousand days is like a day for, or a day is like a thousand years right. to God. So is that millennium, is that really a thousand years? That sounds like an awful long time. <laughs> Well, yeah, if a day is a thousand years, and if we spend a thousand years, that would be 360,000 years. Uh, of course, that's fine with me if that's how long we spend. But I think that once you enter eternity, the principle of a day for a year doesn't apply. Um, there's no need to do that. I think God in Bible prophecy dealing with timelines on earth uses the day for the year principle. But once you've entered eternity... You know, we've got roughly 6,000 years from creation to our present. And then it makes sense that the millennium would be another literal thousand years where the world rests during that time before he makes a new heaven and a new earth. Right. And I understand all that. Um, and, and there'll be judging going on at that time, I guess, takes a long time. <laughs> yeah. Now, of course, there's more than just one timeline that we have. We have the prophetic timeline where one day is equal to a literal year. But then you find here in Second Peter 3, verse 8, it says, but with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. So uh, you've got two sets. If you're doing, dealing with prophetic time, you use a day for a year principle. But here it's talking about a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. And I think what's significant about that is, like Pastor Doug mentioned, the earth is inhabited for about 6,000 years. And then Jesus comes and we get to spend this 1,000-year rest in heaven 
before the earth is recreated at the end of that thousand years. So it's kind of interesting. You're at 6,000 and then 1,000, like a Sabbath of rest uh, when Jesus comes again. I want to thank you for your call, Diane. And uh, let's see, we've got time maybe for one or two more. We've got uh, Anthony. Anthony listening in New York. Anthony, welcome to the program. Uh, good evening, pastors. Uh, can you hear me okay? Evening. Yeah, loud and clear. Okay, great. Um, my question has to do with Matthew 24, um, verses 38 through 40. Okay. Um, and I'll go ahead and read it uh, in the New King James. It says, For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So the focus there is Noah and the taking away of the wicked ones. And so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. And then it says in verse 40, then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. And I remember being taught that um, the wicked will be, the, because of the context of Noah and the wicked being taken at that time, that the wicked at the end of the time will be the ones taken away and um, in the sense of, you know, being destroyed. And um, the others that were left will be the righteous. But then I was reading a commentary, and it says the exact opposite. So I just was trying to figure out what, the, what, what it should be. Well, it's a good, good question, and there is a lot of controversy on it. The, um, the context is, and you read it in Luke, when they say, where are the wicked taken? And Jesus said, where the uh, eagles are, where the body is, that's where the eagles are gathered together. When it talks about the flood came and took them all away, they're taken away in judgment. For the Israelites, when they were good, they got to stay in the promised land. When they misbehaved, the enemies came and took them out. The Assyrians and the Babylonians took them away. But others argue that the word taken, one taken, one left, is taken like taken to somebody. They argue, no, that it's the ones taken are the ones saved. I've understood that the believers are the ones that are preserved. The wicked are taken away in judgment. And of course, like you say, Pastor Doug, there's maybe part of the confusion is there is a taking for both. The wicked are taken away, being judged and destroyed. But we also know when Jesus comes, the righteous, they don't stay on the earth. They take into heaven. But there is a verse, uh, Revelation chapter 6, finishes with the question, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? And it's applied there that the righteous are the ones who are able to stand, whereas the wicked are the ones who are taken away. They turn to the rocks and the mountains. So, yes, the righteous are taken when Jesus comes, but the wicked are also taken away in judgment. So you can maybe take it both ways. I hope that helps a little bit. Yes, it does. Thank you. Now, we have a book, I think, that talks about, uh, Joe Cruz wrote a book on secret rapture, one taken and one left. Is that what it's called? I forget, but I've read it. <laughs> uh, anything, anything but silent. Is that or what anything it's called? Anything but secret. Yeah, anything but secret. That's, that's what it is. And you know, that's a great resource for anybody wanting to learn more about signs of the second coming and uh, what it's going to be like when Jesus comes. And we'll be happy to send this to anyone. You can just ask for the book called Anything But Secret. The number for that is 800-835-6747. And again, ask for the book called Anything But Secret. We'd also like to let you know this is available on our website. So if you go to the Amazing Facts website, you can read that resource, Anything But Secret, for free online. You know, I'm looking at the uh, clock, Pastor Ross. I'm looking at the phones, and uh, we just like to tell Danella and Kimberly, uh, Anthony, if somebody, if we didn't get to your call tonight, God willing, if the world doesn't all die from the plague, we'll be here next week. I think we're, I think things are looking up now, little by little. We know this is a tough time. We're glad we can still be here to minister and to share with you folks. And, and, you know, there's a lot of material Amazing Facts has to offer online. 
Pastor Ross and I had completed a 10-part revival. You can simply go to the Amazing Facts website and look up the New Heart Revival. You can see they're all archived there on uh, YouTube as well as the Amazing Facts site. And keep the ministry in your prayers too. You know, people are uh, uh, sequestering at home right now and we're doing our best to continue to provide lots of fresh programming to people, keep people strong in their faith. Go to the Amazing Facts website. That's simply amazingfacts.org. You'll find layer and layer of Bible-related material, a kaleidoscope of truth. You'll also see a button. Click, donate, keep us on the air. God will bless you. And God willing, we'll study his word with you again next week. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. We hope you understand your Bible even better than before. Bible Answers Live is produced by Amazing Facts International, a faith-based ministry located in Granite Bay, California. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth. For thousands of years, man has worshipped God on the seventh day of the week. Now, each week, millions of people worship on the first day. What happened? Why did God create a day of rest? Does it really matter what day we worship? Who is behind this great shift? Discover the truth behind God's law and how it was changed. Visit SabbathTruth.com. Journey back through time to the center of the universe. Discover how a perfect angel transformed into Satan, the arch-villain. The birth of evil. A rebellion in heaven. A mutiny that moved to earth. Behold the creation of a beautiful new planet and the first humans. Witness the temptation of evil. Discover God's amazing plan to save his children. This is a story that involves every life on earth. Every life. The Cosmic Conflict. If God is good, if God is all-powerful, if God is love, then what went wrong? For life-changing Christian resources, visit afbookstore.com. If you'd like to enhance your study of God's Word, visit our website at www.amazingfacts.org and sign up for our free Bible study course. And make sure to check out our online bookstore at afbookstore.com, which offers thousands of inspiring books, DVDs, and more to help you get the most out of God's Word. To take advantage of the offers you've heard on this broadcast, call us at 800-835-6747 or visit our website at amazingfacts.org. Did you enjoy this program? Make sure to tell your family and friends. Tune in next time for more Bible Answers Live. Honest and accurate answers to your Bible questions.